How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, and then we will begin our study of the Word after I open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have you to come to, that because of your grace, we know that you're you, you care for us, you provide for us, you take care of us, all based upon who you are, not on who we are, and that like salvation, we are totally dependent upon you to uh, provide for us and to sustain us, and the spiritual life is based upon our walk by the Spirit, and it is as we walk by the Spirit through the teaching of your Word that God the Holy Spirit is the one who matures us and strengthens us and the one who produces the character of Christ in our lives. Father, let us not lose sight of the mission, that we are here not to follow our own desires and objectives, but to serve you and to be witnesses to the eternal truth of the Scriptures and the work of Christ upon the cross. Father, we thank you for the time we have tonight to continue our study in First Peter, helping us to understand the significance of of each one of these phrases that we find in his opening chapter. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, it's been about three weeks, I think, since we were in First Peter, so I thought we'd have a little review. And we started off last time talking about the doctrine of regeneration because that's what we run into here at the beginning of First um, uh, Peter. And this is really a significant, uh, significant doctrine. And it's one that has a lot of confusion. In fact, in the first two or three hundred years, probably four hundred years of the church, regeneration was just confused with justification. The terms were used synonymously and interchangeably. When you get into the Middle Ages, uh, another set of confusion comes in, and you, uh, the writers confuse conversion, regeneration. Some people talk about it in a more, as a more detailed thing. Some of it think, just use regeneration as a synonym for all of the other dimensions of salvation. And then comes the Reformation. And the Reformation, again, you just have a lot of confusion. You, I, I've been reading through various uh, systematic theologies the last few days, and it's fascinating to me to see how many different ways these theologians have understood regeneration. And I just think it's very simple to break down the words, and that's what I started to do the last time. So we're looking at this phrase that we're born again to a living hope, that the praise that Peter begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the key ideas here that we see are the foundation for this is God's mercy. He causes us to be born again to a living hope, so it's directed to something that is future, 
and it is done through the resurrection of Christ. So Christ's resurrection is fundamental to, this is really odd because I see these giraffe over here out of the corner of my eye, and I keep wondering, what's over there? Okay. Um, so we're, the, it's through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's something we see connected in numerous scriptures is the idea of hope and resurrection and future, all that tied together. So we'll come back to look at that. So we saw at the beginning that this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, really needs to be understood as uh, eulogetos is, is used there for blessed. It means to say something good about someone. So it's the idea of praise. It's that, that God should be praised because of what he has done. Now, let's think about a practical application of that is when we pray, we should praise God because he has caused us to be born again. We need to understand the dimensions of that, but he has brought about our regeneration, so we sh- he should be praised. That's something we should thank him for, that we have been brought from spiritual death into spiritual life. This is the result of his mercy. Mercy is the application of his love and his grace. Uh, Grace is God's unmerited favor towards uh, sinners, and mercy is the production of that grace. It's grace in operation. So that's the foundation for his action, his mercy. And what he has done is to cause us to be born again. Now, we're not born again. I'll say this a couple of different ways. We'll look at some different passages. We're not born again because we believe. And a lot of people get that idea that our faith causes something. Our faith is the means. Faith is never expressed as a cause in Scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not because of faith. Those are, to, to emphasize that those are two distinct things, the Greek uses two completely different uh, constructions or grammatical constructions in order to communicate that. Means is the way it, something is done or accomplished. For example, if you are, want to, uh, move, let's say move something from one place to another, let's say you're going to move water from one place to another, you move it through a pipe. The pipe is not the cause of the water moving. It is simply the means by which the water gets from location A to location B. It goes through the pipe. So faith is the means by which God God uh, saves us. Now, a passage we ought to look at that sometimes gets misunderstood is in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, we have a well-known verse that uh, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. But if we look at the next verse, it talks about those who believe in his name who were born. That's regeneration in John one thirteen. who were born not of blood. In other words, this birth is not because of your uh, genetic heritage, your racial heritage, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, you can't cause yourself to be regenerated through your own will. If you are positive and you trust, then through faith, but it's not the cause. It's not uh, the cause of your uh, salvation. It's not the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God is the one who... 
uh, causes us to be born again. We trust in Christ, and then God does all of the work in regenerating us. It is not something that is done in cooperation with God. God does all of the work in regenerating us. So we have to understand what this grace solution is, and we go back to the fundamental uh, illustration that's great to use in any gospel presentation, and that is the barrier that that before Adam sinned, there's no barrier between man and God, and Adam and Eve have a perfect relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. And so at that uh, when God created them and put them in the garden, he said, you can eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden. He planted this this garden. It had trees. It had bushes and berry shrubs and everything else. And they could eat from anything. And God supplied an overabundance of food. God always supplies everything we need. Now, there's an interesting point I want to make here in terms of application. Sometimes you run into, we all do this, God, I want you to supply my need, and I want you to do it in either by A, B, C, or D. But God says, well, I'm going to supply it by E, F, or G. No, that's not how how I want that worked out. God says the supply's there, but the only thing keeping you from it might be your your pride or your your agenda rather than my agenda. So God says, here the here are the option. I'm gonna give you everything. It's there. You have to learn to take advantage of it. So in the Garden of Eden, of course, there was no sin. God supplied all the food they needed, and except for one one tree. And he said that was the fruit. Of, that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you ate that fruit, you would die. Something is going to happen, and that's fundamental to understanding rebirth. Is that there is a death that has to be changed? And I'm, uh, it's amazing how many people don't. Uh, theologians that I have read are not focusing on spiritual death and trying to understand it and break it down into its into its uh, appropriate components. So we have this sin barrier, and we've broken that down in the past into these various uh, categories. Uh, sin itself, the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death, uh, the legal forensic penalty that's visited upon Adam. At the instant Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. That legal condemnation, that legal corruption, that spiritual death is then passed on to all of his descendants so that every human being is born with condemned, corrupt because of original sin or Adam's original sin. That doctrine of original sin is unique and distinct to Christianity. Judaism does not have that. In Judaism, they they believe that that people may sin, but they're not born spiritually dead with as a result of Adam's original sin, and that that guilt and is is and condemnation is passed on from generation to generation. And this is fundamental. This is what is known as the doctrine of total depravity. And I always use that word. The Calvinist doctrine is usually expressed as total inability which negates any kind of positive volition. Total depravity is a much better term because it is talking about the fact that all aspects of man's being are corrupt from sin, that everything, the to- all of his being, everything, that's the total, every 
component is corrupted by sin. It's not saying you're as bad or as evil as you could be, but that everything has been corrupted by sin, so there's nothing we can do to solve that problem. The fact of spiritual death, the difference between the penalty of sin lower is that this is the legal penalty that is assigned to all mankind as Adam's original sin. Spiritual death is the personal, individual problem that each of us brings into the world that even though Christ paid the penalty, the forensic penalty for Adam's original sin on the cross, we're still born spiritually dead. That's our individual problem. We come into this world spiritually dead. And so we have a problem because we have re, we have been born with uh, uh, with with the imputation of Adam's original sin, and then we have indwelling sin because we have a sin nature, and then we commit individual sins. So those are the three problems that we face. And what we're looking at here is the fact that we're born spiritually dead. There is a spiritual deficit as a result of Adam's original sin. There's something missing, and that has to be supplied, and that's supplied through regeneration. So we looked at the uh, terminology and definition last week. The definition is that spiritual birth uh, refers to being born again, and that's the terminology that is used. We'll look at the specifics on that terminology. And Well, let me look at that first of all. I think I got these slides reversed. Regeneration is a technical de- term derived. I put three terms up here that are used. Polygenesia, which is used two times, only two times in Scripture. Uh, Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And it's used at one other time in Matthew 19.28, that's the situation when when Jesus is is dealing with the, um, uh, the the Sadducees and they've tried to trap him with this question that if a woman is is uh, married and her husband dies and then you have the practice of of levirate marriage and she marries his brother and then he dies and then she marries another brother and then he dies and this happens seven times and all seven brothers die. And they say, they ask him the question, well, whose wife will she be, uh, in the resurrection? I mean, you know, in the resurrection, he says in the regeneration, and that's a term that refers to the renewal of creation. So that's, that's used as a slightly different sense. Then you have the second phrase, ganao, which is the verb to be born or to be given, to, to give birth. And the word onathan, which there's a debate you'll often hear from people that onathan means uh, again or it could mean above. And when you have a word that is ambiguous and can have meaning one or meaning two, a lot of people want to jump to meaning two because it's obvious God is the one who causes you to be born again, so therefore it must be understood as born uh, from above. But they're really imposing a theology on that, not the context. I think I pointed this out last time. When uh, when Jesus says this, Nicodemus understands him to be talking about being born a second time, not born from above. Of course, Nicodemus, possible that he could be uh, misunderstood. But then you have the word that we have in, in Peter, twice in Peter, anaganao, 
And ana as a prefix means again. So what we have here is a, a word uh, where the, where it clearly means born again. And so when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we get clarity, and that's a principle of hermeneutics, is that whenever you have uh, something that is unclear, it's always defined by other passages where it's clear. But you always get skeptics and overthinkers who want to reverse it and say, well, we have over here it could mean above. So we because it could mean that here, it has to mean that everywhere else. They always want to go in the other direction, and uh, this is just because they've got a an arrogant sin nature. Usually, people like that drive pastors crazy. So this is the basic terminology from the New Testament, and so we define spiritual birth this way. Spiritual birth, or being born again, is defined as the moment a person expresses faith alone in Christ alone. What happens when a person says, I believe Jesus died for my sins? At that instant, there's a series of things that happen simultaneously in the plan of God. Now, we have to think, we break them out uh, logically, but there are several things that happen. They receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and God declares them justified. He creates and imparts a human spirit uh, to that individual so they're born again, and they now have a new life in Christ. They're a new creature in Christ. So there's all these different things that happen at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone. And what happens in regeneration is God, uh, the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit, and God the Father simultaneously, that word should be impart, imparts that that uh, human spirit to the believer and assigns and, and imputes eternal life to it. So he imparts the human spirit and imputes eternal life to that human spirit. And the believer passes from spiritual death to spiritual life. So that uh, we have the statement in Scripture that Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. All things are new. So we have this new life, new life in Christ. Now, key passage for this, there, there's really the, the two main passages are going to be John 3, Titus 3, 5, but there's a couple of others that, that talk about this as well. And so we started last time looking at John 3 when, when Jesus came to uh, Nicodemus. And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus uh, is, is, is shocked by this idea that a man had to first be born again before entering into the kingdom. And in, you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, and we'll just sort of walk our way or talk our way through what happens here. Now, remember the context in John chapter 2, Jesus has the first, at the beginning of John 2, he has the first miracle in Cana of Galilee, way up north, 60 miles, 70 miles north of, of uh, Jerusalem, where he turns the water into wine, demonstrating that he is the creator who can turn water into wine. Now, every day, water is turned into wine, but it just takes a lot longer. Jesus does it instantly, and it's quality wine. Then... He, that's the first of his signs, John 2.11. And then in John 2.13, we're told that the Passover had come, and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. So he travels from Galilee up to Jerusalem, heading south and going up, because Jerusalem is, has a high elevation. So whenever you go to Jerusalem, in, in, in 
English, when we go up, we're going north. When we go down, we're going south. But in Israel, if you're, it's up and down or related to elevation. So you always go up to Jerusalem and you come down from Jerusalem. And doesn't matter which direction you're going, you're talking about elevation. So he goes up to Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, cleanses the temple. And I think there's a significant order here that he demonstrates that he's the creator who can create out of nothing. And he is, and then he cleanses, demonstrating that he can cleanse. And then the next topic is going to be talking about uh, spiritual rebirth. So there's a con- there's a logical order there, demonstrating he's the creator, he's the one who cleanses, and that cleansing is then followed immediately by talk about regeneration. We'll see there's a connection between cleansing and and regeneration. So Nicodemus comes to him, and a lot of people have pointed out different things about this, and I think part of the reason that that Nicodemus comes to him is because Nicodemus is is very busy. He comes at night, and that doesn't necessarily mean he's trying to disguise what he's doing because, as I pointed out, it's at the very beginning, it's near the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's not that long after he's been baptized by John the Baptist. He's baptized by John the Baptist. Then he goes up to Galilee, and he has the first miracle at the at Cana, and then he goes south south to Jerusalem for Passover. So he's probably baptized by John the Baptist somewhere around February or March. Then he goes to the wedding, and then he comes down to Jerusalem. And Passover is usually sometime in in April. It could be late March, but it's probably on our calendar April, and on their calendar the month of Nisan not the car, uh, the month of Nisan, pronounced the same way, spelled a little different. And he uh, comes, to, comes to Jerusalem. So this is at the very beginning, and he comes to Nicodemus. So it's there, he hasn't done much. There's not a lot of a buildup of opposition yet to his ministry, and he's making a claim to be the Messiah by what he has done in cleansing the temple and casting out the money changers. And he's performed a number of miracles, and a number of people have turned to him and believed him. Uh, John 2.22 says, uh, excuse me, John um, 2.23 says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So there's a large number of people who have uh, accepted his message that he's the Messiah. And and Nicodemus has heard about these things. And in verse 2 he says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So as far as Nicodemus is concerned, these signs have accomplished their purpose. They're, they're giving the credentials of Jesus as the Messiah. And Nicodemus says, this is, this is clear. Nobody can do this except their teacher come from God. And that phrase... Uh, uh, come from God as a teacher was a phrase that was used in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls in documents at Qumran that sh- that was a way they referred to the Messiah. So this was, when, when Nicodemus says this, that we know that you have come from God as a teacher, He's implying that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that you're, that you're doing the kinds of things that the Messiah uh, would do. 
and uh, he can't do this unless God is with him. Now, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So he's conditioning entry or, or uh, realization of the kingdom upon being born again, that you can't, you're not, you're not going to go into the kingdom. Now that's his message at the beginning of his ministry, and that's what we learn from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is he's, the message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and here we learn that what he's telling Nicodemus is that an element of that is you have to be born again or you're not going to, uh, see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is confused, needs clarification, and a lot of people are this way. When we start talking to them about the Bible, they get confused because they've got a lot of garbage in their soul. They've got garbage in their soul from carnality that is going to, that's part of their whole suppression mechanism, a suppression of the truth, but also they've heard a lot of wrong things about the Bible, and they're confused about the Bible, and they don't know what the Bible says. And so when you're witnessing to somebody, they may be asking legitimate questions that you need to answer for clarity so that they can understand the gospel. And as a when you're witnessing to somebody, you need to understand that sometimes people are hostile and they're asking questions because they don't think they're trying to trip you up and they want to just argue with you. But there are other people who may appear to be hostile. You, you can't tell if somebody's positive just because they're hostile. You think about Paul. Paul was really hostile. And a lot of, a lot of Christians probably wouldn't want to witness to him at all because he'd send him to jail and have him killed. But he was, and, and the, until the point that he's turned to the Lord and trusted the Lord as his savior, up until that second, you would have said, this guy's going to hell forever because he's killed Christians and he hates Jesus and then he turns. So you can't ever prejudge what somebody's going to do. It may take a very, very long, long time before, before they change. And so Nicodemus comes and he seems to be open. He seems to be asking, asking the right questions, but he's, got misinformation in his soul from the rabbinical theology that they've been been taught. So when Jesus says that you have to be born again, he's not sure what that means. And according to uh, what Arnold has summar Arnold Fruchtenbaum has summarized, according to uh, rabbinic law, there were six ways a person could be uh, born again. And the first way was if a Gentile converted to Judaism, then they would be born again. But Nicodemus is already a Jew, so that wouldn't apply. Second way a person would be born again was if someone were crowned king, uh, that would indicate that they were, they were born again. But Nicodemus couldn't be crowned king because he wasn't from the house of David. Third way you might refer to a person as having been born again is if a Jewish boy at 13 is bar mitzvahed and he becomes a man, then that was also referred to as being born again. But Nicodemus isn't a 13-year-old boy getting bar mitzvah, so that wouldn't apply. A fourth way was that at marriage, a Jew was said to be born again. And we assume because uh, Nicodemus was on the Sanhedrin, he would have already been married. You couldn't serve on the Sanhedrin unless you were married. Uh, a fifth way is that when a rabbi was ordained, then he was born again. So 
Nicodemus is already a rabbi. And then uh, a sixth way in which a person was referred to as being born again was when a rabbi became the head of a rabbinical school. He was said to be born again, but Nicodemus is already called the teacher of Israel, so he's probably the chief rabbi, something like that. So he's already got that. So he's thinking through, I have to be born again. It's not A, not B, not C. I, I, I don't understand what you're talking about because he didn't fit the preconceived categories uh, of Judaism at the time. It's also clear that Jesus understands Nicodemus to understand exactly what he's talking about. You know the Old Testament. How do you not know this? And the only thing that I've been able to come up with is going back to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 26, which is a, a passage that relates to the the uh, beginning of the new covenant in the kingdom. When the new covenant comes into effect, then the people are cleansed, and it's spoken of as a washing. Now, we're going to see that this concept of washing is inherent to regeneration. What's the phrase in Titus 3.5? By the what of regeneration? The washing of regeneration. This idea of positional cleansing is is inherent to what happens uh, with regeneration. So that is probably uh, the what Jesus is alluding to is that there should be an understanding that there was something that took place. Um, in New Testament times, though, because they're basing their understanding on on uh, the rabbinical teaching, uh, what would later be written down in the Mishnah. The only time, think kind of cleansing that rabbis knew about and taught about was the kind of cleansing that I mentioned earlier. It was the uh, first one when a Gentile converted to Judaism. So you have either a newborn at circumcision or a Gentile at conversion uh, would be washed. And this was this sign of a, of a rebirth with a newborn male at the time of their presentation eight days after uh, after they were born, uh, or when a Gentile converted, there was a washing that allegedly rubbed away the stain of sin. And this is referenced in passages such as uh, Tractate Shabbat in the Mishnah and the Pesachim, so that uh, this idea was, was inherent in Pharisees. In fact, I talked about this, I'll talk about it again this Sunday morning, that when when in Matthew chapter 15, when Jesus' disciples are accused by the Pharisees of not washing their hands, it's not about hygiene, it's their obsession with these ritual washings and cleansing. And that was uh, uh, just an obsession with uh, Pharisaical Jews. So that's part of this. So what happens is, uh, we see that there are two aspects, two things that go on with regeneration. One is cleansing of sin positionally, and the other is regeneration, which adds something. So cleansing removes something, removes guilt from Adam's original sin, and cleansing, which, uh, I mean, excuse me, regeneration, which adds something. And that's what we see mentioned in Titus 3.5, the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That expresses those those uh, two particular elements. So I think that the proper order would be that first there's faith alone in Christ alone, 
then logically what would immediately come after that is the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the declaration of our justification, and then cleansing and regeneration, the impartation of a human spirit. Temporally, chronologically, they all happen simultaneously. I'm just thinking through the logical the logical sequence, which is different. Chronologically, they all happened uh, at the at the same time. So Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? He clearly understands this to be talking about a second event. And he misunderstands it. He says, well, can you... And he's probably asked this question in a tone of, I know this can't happen, but... That's what you seem to be implying. Can a man really enter into his mother's womb and do this all over again? I don't think so. That's the that's the tone that, that we would have there. And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of debate over that phrase, born of water. Some people have said that that's water baptism. And this isn't water baptism. It probably refers to water meaning the natural birth. What happens just before a woman gives birth? Her water breaks. You're born of water. That that clear fluid that comes out looks like water. So I think that John is simply saying you're born physically and you're born by the Spirit. There are two different births that take place. And when the physical birth takes place, you come into existence. You're born. Now, what you were in the womb, there's a lot of debate right now with, with Planned Parenthood, and this we need to understand what the Bible says, is that, that we become a full human being at the point of birth when the soul is imparted to the body. But that doesn't legitimize abortion ever because what is there in the womb is human. It is in process of becoming a full human being, and this was the historic position of Judaism that no human being has the right to interfere with the process other than God. Any interference with that process of bringing that life ultimately to full human life, is it may not be murder, but it is not to be done. It is it abuses that which is being formed by God in his image in the womb. And so the this view is referred to theologically as a as the creationist view. Creationism or the term creationist is used to describe two things. First of all, creation as described in Genesis one and two. And then the theological position that the soul is each individual human soul is created and imparted by God at the instant of, of physical birth. The other position that developed historically is called traditionism, and traditionism was first articulated by an early church father by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian also gave us another word, uh, trinitas, from which we get our word trinity, and until, uh, until Tertullian came along, about 175 to 200 and said, what we're really saying here is that God's three in one and one in three. They, he's a Trinitas. Until he said that, nobody could think precisely about it because nobody had that vocabulary. So after, after Tertullian, people could think more precisely about the Trinity than Paul could because Paul didn't have the vocabulary. He didn't know the word Trinity. 
That came along some 150 years after Paul. So um, the word, the concept of traditionism, though, was developed by, by Tertullian, and Tertullian was a materialist. He believed that the soul was transmitted physically and materially through the male semen. That means what? That means that the soul is not immaterial but material. Now, we don't believe that. In fact, in the uh, Middle Ages, in the, uh, in the 12th century, Thomas Aquinas, who's considered the theologian for the Roman Catholic Church, and of course, the Roman Catholic Church is very strong against abortion, but uh, 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 Thomas Aquinas understood this, and he said it was a heresy to think that the soul could be transmitted to the semen. Now, that's just about as clear as you can make it. So, so for much of church history, the tradition view, which I think a lot of Protestants, because they're not taught well, do not understand this, that, that the tradition view was, was considered to be heresy. Even in Roman Catholicism, it was considered to be heresy. In fa- and in the Protestant movement, you have a, a Presbyterian theologian by the name of William G.T. Shedd, who wrote in the mid-1900s, and he takes a tradition view, but he says he's in the minority, that the vast majority of, of Christians are, are creationists. And the reason I always have to talk, uh, talk about this, and I've done, st- done more detailed studies of this back in the Genesis series in Genesis 2, the reason I have to take time on this is because in the inflamed uh, environment after Roe v. Wade, a lot of Christians, theologians even, who were creationists prior to Roe v. Wade, suddenly did a flip-flop because they thought that being a cre- holding to a creationist position meant you had to affirm abortion, which was, which was ridiculous. And so they became traditionists. People like Dr. Bruce Waltke, a number of others who were, who were, who were scholars, but they couldn't think their way through this because they were blinded by all of the nonsense that went along in the, with contemporary culture and the contemporary thing. So, so creationist position does not validate abortion at all. It's simply pointing out that there's a nine-month-long process, the end result of which is a full human being in the image and likeness of God, and because that's the end result of this process, you don't interfere with it, period. And interfering with it is, is morally wrong. It's never treated as murder in the Scripture, but you better not do it. And that was the historic uh, Jewish position. So what... Jesus says, is you're born twice, once physically, once spiritually, and that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So verse 6 is really explaining verse 5, that that which is born of the flesh is flesh tells us that what he's talking about when he says born of water, he's talking about physical birth, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now notice in that verse that the first spirit has an uppercase, the second spirit is lowercase, indicating that there's a distinction, there's something new that is spirit and not Holy Spirit, comes into existence at that moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Now, this takes us back to understanding the problem of spiritual death and that Adam died spiritually. He lost some component of his immaterial makeup when he disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that brings us back to a basic problem 
Uh, we're getting into our issues in biblical anthropology. Biblical anthropology is that study, that branch of systematic theology which focuses on what the Bible teaches about the makeup of the human being. And part of that study involves the origin of, and transmission of the soul, which we just talked about under creationism and traditionism. But it also talks about the components of the soul and how, uh, how man is made. Now, the big categories, this always confuses people, especially if they, because a lot of folks aren't taught right about this. Pay attention to that sentence. Most of you probably were not taught right about this. You have been if you've been listening to me for a while, but a lot of people haven't. There are two views. View number one is that man is dichotomous, which means man is composed of two parts. And those two parts are the material and the immaterial, not the body and the soul. Okay? Those are two parts, but the only people who talk about body and soul and body, soul, and spirit are trichotomists. A dichotomous is somebody who says man is composed of a material part, an immaterial part, and all those phrases that we read about in Scripture, the heart of man, the kidneys, the soul, the spirit, all of those are roughly synonymous terms that are talking about the immaterial part of man. That's Dr. Charles Ryrie takes a, takes a dichotomous position. Trichotomy says that man is, has composed, of, as he was originally created, of three parts, body, soul, and spirit, and that there's a distinction there. But some people have taught this so rigidly that every time you read the word spirit lowercase, you think of human spirit. But the Bible isn't that precise in how it uses these terms. The word pneuma in Greek can mean eight, nine, or ten different things. It can be wind or breath. It can be a mental attitude. It can be thinking. It can be just that immaterial part of man, and it can refer to the soul. It can refer to something that is immaterial but distinct from the soul. But it can also be used as a synonym for the soul. And that's confused people in this debate because what happens is they come along and they read phrases in Genesis like the spirit of Pharaoh. And they say, well, it's not the soul of Pharaoh, it's the spirit of Pharaoh. Now, if you're saying that man has a human spirit and that's distinct, how can, hum how can Pharaoh have a human spirit if he's, uh, if he's not saved? Well, easy. The word spirit is used in a non-technical, generic sense there as a synonym for the soul. So you can't just create these rigid uses of these words. That You have to look at the context and see how it's being used. Now, we have two passages, though, in the New Testament that make it really clear that at least at some level, the what is meant by the soul and what is meant by spirit in a human being are two distinct things. Now, the dichotomists, like Charles Ryrie, will say, no, those are just used synonymously. But I, 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 I don't, they're, they're trying to get around these passages. It doesn't work. In his benediction at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. The insertion of and between each of those nouns indicates there are three distinct things. So in this verse, 
there's clearly a distinction made between spirit and soul and between soul and body and between spirit and body. These are three distinct entities. Now, another verse that does this is uh, is in Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the what? The soul and the spirit. The Word of God can distinguish between soul and spirit, even though in some cases it doesn't. So I've generated this diagram. We have, I don't know why it's doing this, three parts of the, of the human uh, being's body, soul, and spirit. So here we have the human body, and then we have the soul made up of our self-consciousness, mentality, conscience, and volition. That's the human soul, and I've drawn this with the circles intersecting because they all overlap and intersect with each other. And then there was something else that was part of the makeup of Adam, and that's the human spirit. The, the human spirit fits like a glove, a hand in a glove, to enable the parts of the soul to relate to God. Now, I've got a pair of old, not old, but I've had them a while, workout gloves. They are just the scuzziest things because I've sweated in them and they've gotten dirty, but they're the kind of glove that you, you, you can, I could set it up here and it would stand on its own. It's not going to fall over and collapse. It's going to stand on its own it's, and it would look like there's a hand in it, but there's no hand in it. And that's the soul without the spirit because the spirit is like the hand that goes in the glove that gives it flexibility and maneuverability and for the glove to actually do something. Otherwise, it just looks like there's there's something there and there's nothing there. And that's the way spiritually dead people are. It looks like they're they're alive, but they're dead. That's what Paul says. You being dead were made alive in Christ. But you're dead. But people are walking around. Their heart beats. They have thoughts. They they have they have joy. They have measures of peace or stability. A lot, and they can contribute and create, do all kinds of things. But they're spiritually dead. There's nothing that that the real thing that the central thing that animates a person is going to be that that human spirit. And so when Adam died, what happens is that human spirit either no longer functions or it disappeared. And the soul then, the components of the soul, could no longer relate to God. So the self-consciousness becomes it's all about me. And the mentality of the soul is I'm just thinking my thoughts after me and my thinking is the center of everything and I can come to absolute truth only on the basis of, of my thinking. With Unaided reason leads to truth. Conscience, the values, the norms and standards are generated totally by what I want and what I think. And volition is all about me. I will, I will, I will. But when you are regenerate, and we get that human spirit, what happens is the self-consciousness can focus on God-consciousness. The mentality can think about God's revelation. The conscience can now be reshaped with the norms and standards of God. And the volition becomes not, not my will, but thy will be done. 
but it's only because it has now been energized and made alive by the presence of this this human spirit. So this is the issue. When we're born, we're dead, and then at regeneration, we are made alive. Titus 3.5. This is the other central passage, so let's turn there a minute and look at Titus 3.5. Remember, all the books in the New Testament that start with T are together. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. Titus 3.5 says, and we're just going to look at it without looking at the context right now. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, the key is how do we understand this phrase through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit? Now, you thought you knew what that meant, but if you try to diagram it, there are options. Okay? Now, the options, in some sense, don't make a, big, a huge difference in our understanding, but one way in which this is, this is viewed is that the phrase renewing of the Holy Spirit is appositional to the washing of regeneration. That would be something like this, the washing of regeneration, which is the renewal of the Holy Spirit that the phrase renewal of the Holy Spirit is just another way of saying the washing of regeneration. Uh, so we could translate the washing of regeneration, that is the renewal of the Holy Spirit. They would be viewed as as somewhat synonymous, the second phrase explaining the first phrase. I don't think that's what's going on here. The other second way to look at this, is that the washing of regeneration, that, that genitive there would be a genitive of, of uh, where it basically causes it, that the washing produced by regeneration, so regeneration produces a washing or cleansing. And the second thing that happens is that it's uh, by means of renewing of the Holy Spirit. These would be two completely separate uh, clauses. Through the washing produced by regeneration, and by means of renewing of the Holy Spirit. So we're saved by these two different, these are two different means through the washing and by means of renewing of the Holy Spirit. Probably the best way to understand this is as I've diagrammed it here. The, the phrase of regeneration and the term renewing both describe washing. It's a washing of regeneration and it's a washing of renewal. So you have both of those genitives relate, or phrases relate to washing, and they're both done by the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration is done by the Holy Spirit, and the washing that's the renewing is also done by the Holy Spirit. So regeneration and renewal are both the results of the washing. Both of them are caused by the Holy Spirit. So that would mean that God saved us by means of washing us uh, with the result that we were both regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. So the cleansing comes first, then the regeneration and renewal, but it all happens simultaneously. But that, that would be the logical, uh, the logical order so that the Holy Spirit is considered to be the agent 
of regeneration. Now, the other key word here that we need to really focus on is this word washing. Titus 3.5, it's through the washing of regeneration. Now, here it's a noun. It's the word lutron, L-O-U-T-R-O-N, which refers to taking a bath. It's, it's a full, complete washing. Okay, now I'm going to run you by this next session. You all are pretty well taught. We've gone through this many times. But this goes back to John 13, 4, and 5. I just love it when I start seeing things and start pulling passages together. The washing of regeneration is talking about this, this inauguration into the spiritual life. What word do you think of when you think of, of washing? It ought to be baptism. Immersion into something. Okay? So this is going to show there's this intimate connection between the church age regeneration and the baptism by the Holy Spirit. They're two separate things, but there's an intersection here related to this concept of washing. Old Testament saints were regenerated, but in the New Testament, it's connected to that baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now we go back to John 13, familiar passage. I've gone over this many times, but some people still don't always get it. Jesus is serving the Seder to his disciples. He gets up from the table and he begins to wash their feet. He goes from disciple to disciple and he's washing their feet. Now these guys would have probably had a bath earlier in the day. So they're, they're already pretty clean, but when you walk through the dusty streets of Jerusalem wearing your your sandals, then your feet are going to get really dirty. So you'd get they would be washed before you sat down. You wouldn't have to take a bath, but you would have to wash your feet. And the word that Jesus uses there and that John uses all through this to describe the washing of the feet is the Greek word nipto. And nipto just refers to washing a body part or, or a part of something. So if you're washing your hands, you'd use the word nipto. If you're washing your feet, you'd use the nipto. If you're just going to wash your face, you'd use the word nipto. That's not the word you would use if you were going to take a bath and wash from head to toe. That would be the word luo. So Jesus pours the water in the basin and he begins to nipto the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel. He comes to Peter and Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet nipto? And Jesus says, what I'm doing now, you don't realize. You don't understand what I'm doing now, Peter. I'm giving you an object lesson. We're getting a visual aid here, a training aid, and you don't understand it, so keep your mouth shut and just let me do what I'm doing and it'll become clear. So... uh Peter says, no, Lord, you're not ever going to wash my feet. You're, you're not going to do this. And then Jesus said, if I wash your, if I don't wash your feet, nipto, you have no part with me. And that word part, as we've studied before, is a technical word in the Greek, which means a share of an inheritance. It's not the idea. We think of a part, like, did you get that part in a play? No, I didn't get that, that part, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, uh, an inheritance. So when the prodigal son, remember you had a father who's fairly wealthy, successful businessman. He has two sons. The older son is obedient. The younger son is a, a, a rake and, and he's, he's feckless. And he comes to his father and he says, 
Dad, I want my meros, my share of the inheritance. And his dad says, this really isn't a good idea, but I'm going to, I'll give it to you. And he takes his share, and he goes off to Las Vegas, and he just gambles it all away, and he spends it all on wine, women, and song. He parties, and he ends up down in a pigsty eating pig food and thinking he's at a five-star restaurant. And one day he comes to his senses and he says, I I had it a lot better when I was back home. And he heads back home. And when he gets home, he's afraid that his father's going to kick him out. His father welcomes him in open arms. That's the the teaching point here uh, related to him is fellowship. Now he comes back. He's welcomed back into the family because he's never kicked out of the family, just like believers are never kicked out of the family when they sin. You sin, you go off, you're away from the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. You come back and you confess your sins and the Lord welcomes you back with open arms. But you have not redeemed the time and you have wasted your meros. That boy comes home, the, his money's spent. He's not going to get his inheritance back. It is gone. But he's still loved by his father and he's still part of the family. But he's lost his inheritance. Like believers who show up at the judgment seat of Christ, everything burns up, but they enter yet it's through fire. They've lost uh, their inheritance. They have no, no rewards when they get into heaven. That's the point that Jesus is teaching. If you don't let me cleanse you regularly from sin, then you're not going to have an inheritance. So Peter then understands. He says, Lord, you know, don't just wash my feet. Give me a body wash. Let's just do the whole thing. And Jesus said, He who has bathed Luo, Luo, we'll see that in the, yeah, here it is. He who has bathed Luo needs only to wash his feet, that's Nipto, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Here he says, you, that's a plural. Y'all are clean, meaning the twelve. Y'all are all clean, except one of you. That's his point. In the next verse, in verse 11, John's going to clarify this, that, that he's talking about, uh, he's talking about Judas. So he says, uh, if you're already fully clean, that means if you take, if you've taken the full bath, then all you have to do is wash your hands and your feet, and you'll be, you'll be, be uh, clean. So he uses the word katharos for clean, and that here refers to positional cleansing. It can refer to ongoing experiential cleansing, so you have to look at the context. So what Jesus is saying is that all of you are completely clean. You're, you're saved, but not all of you. One of you is not saved. Now, this terminology goes back to uh, Exodus. In Exodus, we learn that in the, in the tabernacle, there was the, the, the laver, and whenever the priest came in, he had to wash his hands and wash his feet because he had done things that were wrong and he had gone places where he shouldn't. But when the priest enters in, and the word there for, for, that's translated into the Greek in the Septuagint is nipto, but in Exodus 40, when the, when the high priest or the priests are installed in their office, that's when they have a full body wash, luo. So when Jesus uses those two terms in John 13, it's significant. He's talking about you only have to be luoed once, and you're completely clean. But when you sin, you have to have ongoing cleansing 
nipto taking place, uh, and that's con- that's confession of sin. So this takes us back to Titus three, that that it's the washing of regeneration, lutron. That's that positional cleansing that takes place at the instant of salvation. We are cleansed legally, judicially of all sin. Now, look at the whole context here. When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, and then, comma, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly. That's the Holy Spirit. He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When did that happen? The day of Pentecost. Peter was there, preached a sermon. That having been justified, aorist tense, the justification here it precedes the main verb, which is we should become. See, that main verb is an aorist passive subjunctive. So first you're justified, then it's for a purpose that we should become heirs according to what? The hope of eternal life. So the regeneration takes place so that we should become heirs to the hope of eternal life. And the word there uh, translated should become is genomites, becoming something we weren't before. So now we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, where do we see that terminology? First Peter 1.3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the same thing that Paul's talking about in Titus. Born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I just want to hit two more verses First Corinthians 2.12, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. I've taught this before. You can go back and listen to the Corinthian tapes. But the phrase there, who is from God, is the Greek phrase, ta numa ek tutheu. Now, I put that word ek, the preposition, in uppercase because I've searched the New Testament, and every time you have the phrase spirit of God, it's always ta numa tutheu. There's no ek in the middle. Ek means from. This is the only place that Paul or anybody inserts a preposition in the middle of that phrase, indicating this is something that stands out. And I think according to the context of 1 Corinthians 2, this is talking about the human spirit. It's up. That spirit is uppercased in your Bible, but it should be lowercase. It's talking about what happens at salvation. We receive a human spirit which enables us. We're no longer going to be a natural or soulish man. Verse 14 says that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. There we have the normal phrase, tanuma tutheu, for the Holy Spirit. The natural man, the soulish man, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. And he doesn't understand them, cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. That comes with regeneration. So, regeneration, Ephesians 2.5, we were dead, we're born dead in our transgressions, but he makes us alive together with Christ. So, that takes us back to this concept that we're born again, something new comes that we didn't have before, and because of that, we can now have a relationship with God and understand what he is teaching. So now we'll come back next time, and we'll go forward a little bit. I think I had a couple of more things. No, not on regeneration. So it ties it to this next concept of living hope. What does that mean? And we'll address that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Help us to understand these things and to be thankful 
for our regeneration, that we praise you because you have caused us to be born again to a living hope, and therefore we as believers should manifest that hope. Our lives should be characterized by the reality of that hope that we are looking forward to, that we are called for a purpose today in light of that future expectation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.